Would you pray with me? Dear God, would you speak? And would you give us ears to listen keenly for you? In your name, amen. W.T. Stace was a public philosopher from the 1930s through the 1950s. And what he studied and researched was mysticism and more particularly mystical experiences. What a fun job. You just got to sit with people over and over and over again and hear them reflect on mountaintop moments of their lives. And there were six kind of you know, criteria that consistently seemed to come up in his research. One was that there was a sense of sacredness in these mystical experiences, a, a connection to that which is holy, something spiritual that people sensed was happening in them. Another thing was that there was a noetic quality about them, and I don't know what that word means either, so I'll tell you. It means that the experience was full of meaning, that a person had a sense that they were suddenly face to face with ultimate reality. You know, the reality that's more real than our everyday reality. People also expressed feeling a, a deep felt sense of positive mood change, that they were filled with joy, a sense of peace perhaps, awe, perhaps they said, wow. There's also an ineffability to mystical experiences, meaning it's hard to know how to describe them to people. That when we try to put language on it, it fails us. Sometimes there's a paradoxical nature to mystical experiences, that there's kind of these two contradicting ideas. So maybe you've heard people say things like, ah, oh, I just, I heard God speak to me. Well, I mean, I didn't hear like a voice, like, but, but God told me this, right? Like these things that don't make sense together, right? God speaks, but he doesn't speak, but he speaks. And there's also a sense that mystical experiences transcend time. There's a timeless aspect to these experiences. Now, based on these criteria, I think a case could be made that in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, we are getting a third-person account of a mystical mountaintop experience of Simon, son of Jonah. We all know him better as Peter, but he's not there yet. We've been walking with Peter throughout this Lenten season, and we're accompanying him as his wandering heart follows all the twists and turns that come from attempting to follow Jesus. And so far, we've seen Jesus seek Peter out and call him to become a disciple. We've seen Jesus steady Peter's feet on top of a raging sea. 
We've seen Jesus rescue Peter when he falls into the crashing waves. And so far, it's been a pretty exciting journey. But today we find the disciples entering Caesarea Philippi, a religious cultic center throughout history, witnessing the worship of Baal, of the god Pan, of Caesar Augustus, a place where people have put their faith into a great many things. And it's a complex religious setting. And Jesus starts asking some complex questions. Who is it that the people say the Son of Man is? And his disciples' response are just as complex as the setting that they are in, right? Well, you know, I heard someone the other day say that they actually thought you were John the Baptist resurrected. Well, I heard, Jesus, that someone believed that you were in a reincarnation of Elijah. Well, no, no, no. I'm hearing that he's the prophet Jeremiah. Maybe he's some other prophet. We don't know. All kinds of theories are flowing out of the people that are surrounding Jesus. And as the disciples are pouring over these theories, I love the way the NIV translates Jesus, saying, but what about you? Who do you say? I am. And Simon, the son of Jonah, in a mystical mountaintop moment, speaks up on behalf of all of the disciples with a clear, bold declaration, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. We don't know exactly when this mystical moment is taking place in Peter's heart? Is it happening right at that very moment when the question is being asked? Is it something he's been mulling over, occupying his time as this fisherman is trying to make heads or tail of what's going on in his life right now? Was it a word that Simon heard from the divine? Or was it something that just started to stir inside him and bubbled up and burst out? We don't know. But what we do know is the clarity of Simon's declaration didn't come from his own logical deduction, but from a transformational mystical encounter with the divine. And it's depicted really beautifully in the painting by, um, by Reverend Lauren Wright Pittman this morning. You see, all of these filters that the world is seeing Jesus through, kind of hazy, and then right through the center, a beam of light, and suddenly Peter is seeing Jesus in full color. And he sees Jesus for who he truly is. And the seeing is reciprocal. Jesus is recognizing the hand of the divine at work. So in response to Simon's declaration, Jesus blesses him with a new name. I don't know about you guys, but I, 
I get kind of jealous when I hear stories about people getting blessed with a new name. Like, I wonder what that would be like. What would my name be? Jesus calls Simon Petra, Peter, which means rock or stone. Now, the naming ceremony that's happening here kind of gets lost on us in a contemporary setting. Um, most of us know some people named Peter. Anybody know a Peter? Yeah, we have two right in our congregation, right? It's a pretty popular name. Some might argue it's a pretty popular name because of Simon, son of Jonah. But when Jesus gives Simon the name Petra, it is not a common name. In fact, there is no account, according to scholars, of anyone being named Rock in Aramaic or Greek predating this moment. So it's not like Jesus said, well, you're not going to be named Samuel anymore. Today, I'm going to call you Ted. It's more like Jesus said, no, you're not going to be Samuel anymore today because from this day forward, you are tree. <laughs> that's the kind of thing that's happening. Simon, you're not Simon anymore. From this moment forward, you are rock. What an awesome name! It's an interesting image, too, for someone like Peter, don't you think? I mean, I've heard this passage preached. I know what happens, but it's just not an image, a rock, that I typically associate with Peter. You know, rocks are solid. Rocks are secure stable, unwavering. Rocks aren't emotionally charged. They don't question you. They don't doubt. Rocks don't fall asleep on the job. Rocks don't fly off the handle when soldiers show up at night. They don't reject they don't deny, do they? The hard part about mountaintop experiences is that we always have to come down. They're often fleeting if we experience them at all. According to Stace's criteria of what qualifies as a mystical experience, studies showed that in North America, between 30 to 40% of people experience a mystical encounter in their lifetimes. That means that 60 to 70% of us don't. I know, that's tough news. <laughs> And for those of us who do, they don't happen all that often. Moments on the mountain are just that, they're moments. 
I wonder how many times Petra wondered about how well his name fit once he was back down at sea level. What do we do with these mountaintop experiences when we're no longer in them, when they feel distant or worse, when they feel like maybe they didn't really happen the way we thought they did? In her book, Listening for God, A Minister's Journey Through Silence and Doubt, Renita Weems writes, the long silence between intimacies the intermittable pause between words, the immeasurable seconds between pulses, the quiet between epiphanies, the hush after the ecstasy, the listening for God. This is the spiritual journey, learning how to live in the meantime, between the last time you heard from God and the next time you'll hear from God. I mean, look, Peter had the benefit of proximity and time and space to Jesus. This rock walked and talked with Jesus, watched him heal, listened to his astonishing teaching firsthand. He ate food that had been multiplied and given to thousands. Yet this rock had a wandering heart, much like the rest of us. And I don't think that Jesus had any misgivings about Peter having some kind of unshakable conviction, any more than he has any misgivings about our unshakable conviction. Jesus knows that Peter's world is about to turn upside down in just five verses. (laughs) You'll hear about it next week. But nevertheless, Jesus celebrates this first quantum step towards understanding. And he makes sure that Peter has something to remember it by. A name. You see, we need what Krista Tippett calls spiritual technologies. And just a shout out to Judy Zimmerman, her, for reminding me of that term this week. Spiritual technologies for remembering what we knew so clearly when we were up on the mountain. Spiritual technologies that help us to remember that which becomes dismembered. Perhaps it's a name to remind us who we are and whose we are. Perhaps it's a story to remind us that our wandering hearts are not alone in this journey. Perhaps it's bread dipped into a cup of wine, assuring us that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountaintop made low that in the kingdom of God, we won't need mountaintop experiences anymore because there will be a day. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is indeed coming. When there will be justice and peace on the earth. 
May it be so. Amen.